the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Heavenly Father, despite how challenging we may see the reality of the difficulties and the challenges of temptation and sin and just everyday living for you, our Lord Jesus Christ, we do understand that all of it is a privilege and it is based on the fact that you died for our sins, that you conquered sin, that we are not people who are enslaved to sin. Sinners, yes but enslaved to sin, no. And that is all because of you. And as we continue this study, as we look at how to live in light of that, in response to that, how to partake of the wonderful privileges, of the spoils of your victory that has been passed on to us, I pray that you would guide us and watch us and help us to see these things as a privilege to be a light and salt in this world and not as a difficult burden. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I really appreciate about the hymn that we just sung, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, is not only the words. I don't know if you, you picked up on it. It starts with, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. And then it goes on and talks about the peace of Christ and the love of Christ and really the victory of Christ. And what I really appreciate that is it's coming from a place which I believe is is um, supported by kind of the slow beat, the, 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 the tone of the music. It's not forceful, it's not too fast, but it's almost, you can hear the writer of the hymn saying, Lord, it's hard, but this is my desire. Please, Lord, as I strive and as I battle through this life, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Right? You see how kind of even the melody kind of is like this soothing just prayer of a, of a sinner saved by grace who understands what God desires and desires that. And you can almost feel, and I don't, I don't want to assume anything about what the writer was going through, but you can almost feel like, Lord, this is tough. Not, I will do this, or this is happening, but may this please be so, Lord. And that's really the essence of what we're talking about this morning and last week, and really, I guess, any time we open up the Scriptures, is that we know what we're supposed to do when we know the the serious and powerful reality of Christ's death and His calling of us and as our motivation and a purpose for why we do all these things. And there is a sense of you must do this, you need to do this, how dare you not do this, But at the same time, there is a gentleness and compassion in our Lord and Savior. There is an understanding in in the experience and mind of our faithful great high priest, as the writer of Hebrews says, where we can say, Lord, you know how tough it is. May this just be so. And may this be our prayer this morning as we turn again to 1 Peter chapter 4. Would you turn there with me? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We covered the first three verses last week. We'll finish up this paragraph this morning. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. Coming on the heels of talking about Christ's victory over sin and death, Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Verse 4. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, 
that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. We're in the middle of our outline, which is six responses to Christ's victory through suffering. Christ's victory that was achieved through suffering, through his death. So six responses of the Christian to Christ's victory on the cross. Last week we saw three of these six responses. I'll quickly review. The first we saw last week was cease from sin by having the mind of Christ. And it's basically talking about how Christ was willing to die and suffer for the sake of dealing with sin. Though we do not deal with sin the way he did, it's the same idea. It's a willingness to suffer because we have partaken of this victory over sin. And there's also two other nuances that we drew out. One is, it is really only the one who has partaken of that victory. In other words, the true believer who would be willing to suffer perhaps even die, be martyred for the sake of the gospel. Someone who's just uh, uh, just pretending to be a Christian or just attends church because he enjoys it but is not a true Christian. When it comes to someone saying, oh, you're a Christian, I'm going to beat you up, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to fire you for that, then they're going to say, well, no, no, I'm not really a Christian. I just like hanging out with Christians. And the other aspect of it is, of course, the understanding is that through these suffering, through these trials, we become more like Christ. Secondly, we saw that we are to redeem the time by focusing on the will of God. We saw that in verse 2. Redeem the time by focusing on the will of God. And this simply means there's only so many hours, so many days, so many years we have left on this earth. How many? We have no idea. But we are to spend our remaining days answering the question, what are you going to do? You have two choices, pursuing the lusts of men or... Pursuing the will of God. And of course, the answer for us is we are to pursue the will of God. And really, there is no middle ground. You're either doing either or. And thirdly, we saw that we are to abandon the past by remembering the life of depravity. And this is where in verse 3, Peter lists all these serious sins, these habitual sins that really revolve around uh, uh, just parting, right? A lot of drinking, a lot of wicked parties, a lot of uh, illicit sexual activity. And we saw that uh, much of this had was very ingrained in the culture. It was done out in the open. And part of that was because of the connection of this kind of behavior uh, required in the worship of these uh, Greek gods and goddesses. And what he says is, you as a Christian, regardless of when you were saved, even if it was uh, at a very young age, you already had had enough time, more than enough time is the grammar he uses, the vocabulary he uses rather. You've had more than enough time to pursue the lusts of the world, to be uh, someone who is enslaved to sin and just giving in to these things. So now press on to do what is right. And as we move on to uh, our, what, what is new for us this morning, response number four and verse four, it follows on the heels of this background of all of these sins and this grossness that was a norm in society that he just talked about. Our fourth response to Christ's victory is shock the world by living righteously. Shock the world by living righteously. And I see this in verse 4, not the whole verse, but I'll read for you the first majority of the verse. In all of this, and in all of this, they, speaking of the, the unbelievers, are surprised that you, Christian, do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation. Referring again to all of those sins that were listed. And one of the contextual points, again, that I brought out last week was the fact that in their historical context, right, this is, uh, this is a place in ancient Asia about 2,000 years ago uh, where people like Bacchus and Zeus were very real to them. I mean, they didn't exist, but you understand what I mean. It, it wasn't just something they studied or there wasn't just like, oh, yeah, there's some people. Can you believe there's some people that still go to the Temple of Artemis or whatever? No, this was all around them, especially if you, you lived. In, in, in Rome or certain places where there, you, know, you would see these temples, you would see these altars everywhere, and everywhere there were people who were following these religions, and the more devout of the people, 
would do those, you know, participate in those uh, orgies and parties and drinking and all of those things to celebrate whatever that specific god or goddess uh, required. Now you can see, put two and two together, that in man's depravity, it's not so hard to worship these gods. Right? You say, I could just let loose and do all these things that my sinful flesh desires. I can uh, sleep with all these temple prostitutes. I can get drunk every day. And it's to the glory of this God or goddess. Hey, that's, that's not a, you're not twisting arms here to get people to do this kind of thing. And so, so kind of the bigger point that I'm trying to make is, unlike today, religion played a significant role in the culture. I'm not saying religion isn't significant today, but especially in our society, it doesn't kind of permeate throughout our culture, right? You meet religious people, but you meet religious people, right? It isn't everyone is religious to some degree, as it is in some other countries. So as such, understanding this historical context, many of the original Christians that Peter is writing to were converts from these idolatrous uh, worship and gods and goddesses. And consequently, once, perhaps even just a few days ago, a few weeks ago, were practicing all of those things that Peter lists. And so even though we read this and say, hey, I know this stuff happened today, but it's a little far-fetched, Right? Even people today, especially in Silicon Valley, they don't drink like that because they got to get to work the next morning. They understand, you know, different diseases if they sleep around too much, that kind of thing. Just even for, you know, selfish reasons, they don't do these types of things. You got to understand that historically this was widespread and many of these born again Christians were practicing these things because by virtue of when and where they were born, you, were, you followed these religions, and so you would, do, uh, you would partake in these really extravagantly sinful lifestyles. Naturally, when converting to Christianity, these new believers' lives would be radically changed, not in, only in regards to their souls, right, saved, going to heaven, but inevitably their outward behavior as well, because cold turkey, they would stop doing all of those things. And this change is really evident in all new Christians in any time and place, but I believe so much more so considering what these Christians 2,000 years ago were actively practicing up until their point of conversion. And what Peter now says is that the change will be such a stark contrast to who they once were that their unbelieving friends, their former colleagues and peers, their former fellow worshipers will be surprised. They will be shocked. It isn't just, now I'm not going to the bar uh, tonight, I'll go with you tomorrow, i got something to do. It's just this drastic 180 degree turn. And so the word that Peter uses here, the word surprise in the NAS, literally means astonishment or shock. And the idea is, is being surprised by the novelty of something. <laughs> this, this is new. Wow. This, this is unheard of. Why would you do this? Or even, as we'll see is probably the case when we, when we look at the end of the verse, upset, frustrated, angry by the turn of events, a new turn of events. And this concept of being surprised also includes the idea of being offended. Because, let's be honest, whether good or bad, people often feel a resentment toward that which doesn't fit the pattern of lifestyle that they are used to. Okay? This is not pro or against him, but a good example of that would be our country's reaction to Donald Trump. Right? We're not used to this. Even with a conservative politician, we are not used to this kind of tweeting and this kind of vocabulary and this kind of behavior. We like the polished politician. Keep that kind of talk behind closed doors in the Oval Office when the reporters aren't there. And so we're, we're shocked, right? We don't like this. We're uncomfortable. It's different. I mean, it could be something as simple as, Never, ever have I faced traffic, and then here comes Google, here comes Facebook, and now it takes an hour to get to work instead of 15 minutes. I don't like that. That makes me upset. 
right? Because it's just not what you're used to. Even more so in this context, because we're talking about like, hey guys, why aren't you coming? Right? We got the wine is ready, the drinking is ready, the temple prostitutes are ready. What do you mean, no? Are you busy? Next week? No, never again. And in fact, I don't think you should be doing that either. And we see in many ways the, the same thing today. Right? You as Christians, uh, in, in a lot of ways, and, and that's why I think in our modern society sometimes externally the contrast is not as stark. Right? But in a lot of ways there are certain issues that you believe in that you probably don't like talking about at work or among your non-Christian family members because you know it's just going to end up in an argument and you're not going to change any views. I mean, pick one of any number of issues. Uh, the Christian view of, for example, uh, say abortion. Right? We understand this is a spiritual issue, it's a biblical issue, it's a God-honoring issue. Uh, but let's say even from the standpoint of it being a political issue. It is no longer an issue of conservative, liberal, shake hands, let's agree to disagree, let's let the country decide, let's let the you know, electoral college do its thing. No, it's come to a point that if you are pro-life, you are looked at like you are insane. You are crazy. It has nothing to do with what's in the womb. You hate women because it's a women's rights issue. How in the world can you believe that? It's not like, yeah, I see your view. I was kind of on the fence, but I'm just pro-choice, right? It's like, are you insane? Are you an idiot? How in the world can you believe that? There's more respect in our society for people who have claimed to see in Sasquatch than people who are pro-life these days. But here's the thing. We can't blame them. How can we blame them? What else could they do? And this is, you know... This is what Peter will look at and say, these people are depraved. They don't have Christ. They need Christ. Don't go knock down the altars and confront them and do all this stuff. They need the gospel. People don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have a holy God to whom they submit. And even if they do choose our moral views, it's for political or whatever reasons. It's not to glorify God. It's still filthy rags in the eyes of God. All the unbeliever has is himself. They submit to themselves. They do and think what feels right in their finite, sinful, selfish logic. And in fact, Peter goes on to explain this. What are they surprised at? That Christians do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. We don't join them, he says. We're not running with the crowd. Joining the crowd, we're not doing as they do. And the word excesses, whether we're talking about what he just described in the 2,000 years ago, or even what we see in our uh, society, in our country, and really in our world today, I believe the word excesses is very appropriate. If you have the NIV or the ESV, it says flood, and that's what it literally means. You ever, uh, you ever been to the uh, Fitzgerald Marine Preserve in Half Moon Bay? The tide pools, right? There's a lot of other stuff, but we like to go there to, to see the tide pools. You go online, see when it's low tide, and then you go. You're all, I think, familiar with what tide pools are, right? It's when it's low tide and the water recedes, and so there are all of these rocks that have little craters or pools in them that are now filled or half filled with water. And you can walk and climb onto these rocks that just a few hours ago were underwater. You couldn't even see them. And you go and you look for crabs and anemones and fish and, and if you're lucky, maybe even an octopus. You probably won't see an octopus, but that's what Fitzgerald advertises because, you know, then more people go. I'm going to see an octopus. But make sure you check the tide schedule. Because you will only have a small window before you're completely underwater until the rocks are accessible. And if you want and sit there on the shore as the tide comes in, you can look at where you were just standing a few minutes ago as the water comes together, fills, and then floods over those rocks to the point that the water is so high you can't even see the rocks anymore. Or you could, 
if you had scuba gear. And that is the picture that Peter is using to describe the sinful nature of our society. It's not just a little bit wrong here, a little bit bad here. We are drowning in it. It is flooding. And what is it that's flooding over? Dissipation, he says. Debauchery in the ESV. It is literally wasteful, uncontrolled living. This is the unregenerate man who by his own nature is depraved and enslaved to sin. Again, we don't judge them. But for the grace of God, go I. Right? There but for the grace of God, go I. This is who we once were. This is someone who's enslaved to sin. It's, the, it's not the mind of Christ as Savior. It's the mind of Himself. It's the mind of sin. It's the mind of what feels good. It's a mind that thinks about nothing but his own selfish pleasures and feeding his sinful passions. And this is why the contrast between your life as a Christian and your life before getting saved is not just, wow, that's different. It is jarring. It is shocking. It is astonishing. The things in which you previously put your affections were spilling over, flooding, and staining your soul. And if any change is to be made, only God can do it. And maybe the tide pools are a good example of that. You're like, oh man, we got here too late. My kids really want to flip over some crab shells. So you get a little bucket and you start trying to empty the ocean. You're never going to see those rocks. Only God can do it. And it's the same thing with what has flooded your soul when you're an unbeliever. The depravity, the unregenerate nature. No amount of personal effort, no amount of moral achievement or hard work can ever remove the stains. Only God can. And if you're a Christian this morning, God did. And your life shocks them. Because the change in your life is only achievable by a miracle. It is not humanly possible. That's why it's so shocking. Someone said, yeah, I kind of got sick of all this drinking and sleeping around. I tried to change, but I couldn't. It's impossible. We can't do it. How in the world did you do it? Shocking. And the answer, of course, is I didn't. That's the whole point. It takes someone greater than us. God changes, so the change is drastic. Listen to 1 John 4.4. 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. This is talking about the sins, the, the temptations from the evil in the world. Because, how have we overcome them? Why are we from God? Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. That's right there. How is that possible? Because God did it. How can God do it? Because He's more powerful than what's in the world. And the context is, frankly, talking about evil spirits and demons. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is very much changed. No, no, no. He is a new creature. Old things are dead, passed away. Behold, new things have come. This isn't, yeah, it's a lot cheaper to not sand and just paint over the old paint. And you know the whole time the old paint is still there. Completely new. Completely gone. I would say sanding a new paint isn't even a good description. You've moved to a whole other state and bought a new house. Understand that this change is shocking to the world. Because it's not like a new job. Like, whoa, he spent all that time in, in, in medical school and, and, and was a doctor for a few years, and, and now he's a door-to-door salesman. That's shocking, but not as shocking as what we're talking about. It's not like a life phase, like getting married or, or going away for, for college, right? Even if, even if everyone, you know, most likely to fail. I don't know if that's a thing in yearbooks, right? It's like, he got married? Right? Whoa, that guy was like flunking out of school. How did he get that job? No matter what it is, it's not just a life phase. And unlike the normal phases of life that I just mentioned, with this change that Peter is talking about, you don't just get a, hey, good for you, congratulations, as a result of the changed life. This life that shocks people around you. 
The reaction is very different than, hey, good for you, congratulations. It's more in line with what we have been talking about the last few weeks, the end result is persecution. That's how different it is. Because at the end of verse 4, Peter says, they're shocked, but they don't just say, wow, that's surprising, let's go back. They're shocked and they malign you. And that leads us to response number 5, our second for this morning. Trust the judge by enduring persecution. Trust the judge by enduring persecution. The end of verse 4 into verse 5, and they will malign you, or they malign you. Verse 5, but they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In the NIV, that word malign is translated heap abuse. By the way, I, I'm, you know, when I, when I study and I present to you, I'm going to the original Greek, that's what the New Testament, uh, you know, 99.5% was written in. The reason I quote the ESV or the NIV is because I know that the NAS, NAS ESV, and NIV are the three uh, majority versions used in our church. So I just mentioned that to you because I don't want you to get confused. Sometimes you're like, what's malign? It says this. Why do you say flood? It says this. So just to kind of keep us all on the same page, it's not that I am or I'm not giving any uh, credence to those versions. I'm just kind of helping you see uh, different English words and kind of keep you uh, with us. Anyways, malign is heap abuse in the NIV. Uh, This is a word in the Greek that when used about God... Not that God is maligning, but people malign God. It's the word blaspheme. When it's used of people or towards people, it's the same idea as blaspheme, but towards human beings. It means to defame or to slander someone, to to hurt their reputation, to speak evil of them. I guess a good example would be the, I don't know if this actually happens anymore, but the stereotypical uh, uh, office gossip, right? That there's always someone that's, you know, doing something bad or, 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 or rose up the ranks by doing something immoral, whatever it is, right? It's, you're hurting their reputation. And this is the idea of malign. In other words, Peter is saying, once again, that the reason the world persecutes you is not just because of who you proclaim, but also because of how you live as a result of who you proclaim. Right. Uh, That's why he lists all these things and says, you don't do these things anymore. Thus, they are shocked and thus they malign you. And this isn't uh, Paul being dramatic, Peter rather being dramatic. Uh, this This isn't him writing some hypothetical to stir up the emotions or to make him sound like this really great writer. This was happening to the Christians at that time. In fact, we have plenty of historical evidence from both Christian and secular, that means non-Christian, sources that explain very clearly, ancient historians, that tell us it was indeed the refusal of Christians to participate in these things that led to their persecution. These commonplace forms of entertainment, these even civic ceremonies and idolatry, really anything Christians considered immoral, that is why they were hated, despised, and slandered. And this, you can, you can look it up. There are historians who clearly from their writings agreed with this persecution, hated Christians, and said, this is why we do this. And then there are Christians or neutral people who are like, so sorry for them, but this is, they got what they were asking for because they lived this way and thus society hurt them. One commentator wrote this, The Christians were compelled to stand aloof from all the social pleasures of the world. And the Gentiles, or the unbelievers, bitterly resented their Puritanism, regarding them as the enemies of all joy, and therefore enemies of the human race. And if you think about it, you listen to some things that are said in the last, and I'm sure the next presidential debates, this is the ideal, right? 
you clearly hate people if you're doing this and believe this. You clearly hate our society and hate what we're standing for and hate progress if you're going to vote for this guy or this woman. And it's the same idea here. You Christians stopped worshiping these idols. You stopped joining our parties in worship of these idols. You hate us. And you can see how you can stir up persecution. Oh, that group? The followers of that Jesus Christ? They hate you, you know that? They hate us. They're anarchists. They don't like us. They're causing problems. And you understand, again, the, for the original recipients of this letter, the historical context involves societies that had less diversity region to region, and they had closer-knit communities, right? You know, the, are you friends with the person that lives uh, around the block, four doors down? No, you don't even know them, Right? You might know what they drive or what they look like or that their, their kids want to always run around naked on the street or whatever, right? But you don't know them. You're not friends. That's not how it was then. They didn't have cars. They didn't have travel. They didn't have multinational corporations that assign you from country to country with the same job. That You just stayed there. And so when this sort of slander came out, it made them stand out even more. The rejection by society was especially painful. Because these false rumors, these lies, once they were out there, they were hard to correct. And they couldn't just leave. They couldn't just find new friends. They couldn't just not talk to these people because the the communities were so tight. And so this would inevitably lead to ostracism from their friends, from their colleagues, even from their families. And although in our society, Christianity is so large and diverse that we, uh, to a certain degree, are insulated from being all lumped together, the reality is that persecution and ostracism still exist because of what we believe, whom we follow, and how we live. I hear it all the time. And, you know, it's, I understand that it's not always direct religious persecution, but it's because of how you live, Right? Hey, I heard you guys are going out to dinner after work. No, 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 we're all going to head home. And then you find out they all went to dinner. Because they also all want to get drunk and they don't want you to ruin that for them. These little, little ways, but also in big ways. And so we have, according to the scriptures, we have an entire people, not a people group, a people, humanity, that in their depraved state because of who we are, don't like us. Persecute us. Malign us. So what do you do? How do you get revenge? How do you put them in line? You don't. You wait. And you trust the Lord. And you let Him do what He is going to do. Verse 5. But they shall give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I really hope when you hear that verse, if you are currently being persecuted, your response is not, yeah, God, come soon. You're like, oh, man, I need to preach the gospel to that guy that I was kind of hating on a few minutes ago. As hard as it is, physically, emotionally, familially, don't take matters into your own hands. We are called to patience, we are called to love, we are called to holiness. We are prohibited from vengeance and judgment and anger. This goes everything from let's kill them, let's knock them down, let's hurt them, let's shut them up, to I'm just going to give this one co-worker the cold shoulder. That is all vengeance and it's not for us to do. And the judgment Peter speaks of here is final judgment. He says the living and the dead is simply a way to say all people, because everyone's either living or dead. More specifically, the living would have been those who are alive when he's writing this letter. The dead would have been those who have already died when he wrote this letter. And he's really using, when he says they shall give an account and talks about the judge, he's talking about, he's using consistently throughout the verse courtroom language. They are going to stand on trial before not a judge, but the capital J judge. You lawyers in here, you don't like that judge? Even those judges will stand before the judge one day. And so, as he often does in this letter, Peter turns our focus 
to the glorious end times. In the last days, these individuals will give an account before the throne of God at what is called the great white throne of judgment spoken of in Revelation 20. In fact, could you turn there? Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Just flip all the way to the back of your Bible. If you had a glossary, you're too far. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And you'll see immediately where we get this title, Great White Throne Judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 and following, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. That means servant, janitor, president, king, queen, doesn't matter. They're all there. They're all standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They were there temporarily as punishment. We call that hell. They are now lifted up into the the judgment, verse 13. Um, or end of verse 13, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And we know when the unbeliever is judged according to the deeds, there's only one verdict, one decision. Verse 14, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death being physical death. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So when we talk about trusting the Lord, not taking vengeance, but in the midst of persecution, I mean, you know, we trust the Lord all times for everything. But the point here is in the midst of persecution, there's a few things I want you to keep in mind. The first is the word ready in verse 5. The judge is ready. He's ready to judge. The idea here is that God is in a constant state of readiness. He is ready to judge right now. But it is because of His infinite wisdom and His patience with man that He has not come to judge yet. So... The idea is, he's, and you know this, he's not slacking off, he's not resting, he's like, I need a break, there's a lot of names, I don't want to go through that book yet. No, he is ready. He could do it right now. But he is choosing to wait. And my point here on a practical level is that I want to remind you that God, in the midst of your persecution, is very much aware that you are in the midst of persecution. The reason he's not judging is because it's not time yet. It's not because he's not ready. He knows what's going on. And find comfort in that. And that's, uh, let's say that's the micro level. On the macro level, he knows what our society and world believe and where they are headed. He knows that the world is so bad that even 2,000 years ago they were shocked by Christians behaving in the way that mankind was supposed to behave back in the Garden of Eden. He, he knows society is like that. Right? He knows what our politicians believe. He knows what our politicians are tweeting. He knows what our politicians are doing behind closed doors with people who they are not married to. He knows. He knows Planned Parenthood exists. He knows what doctors are doing, what doctors are counseling pregnant women who don't want to give birth. He knows these things. He is aware of these things. And as much as we may conjecture and guess, he is very much aware of how bad things are going to get in the future as well. And so trust him. He knows. Find comfort in his understanding, in his knowledge of these things, and trust his wisdom. Have you ever been in that situation with children or spouse or someone? Like, you've been there before. You know what's going to come. And they're like, why aren't we going? Why aren't we going? You're like, just wait. Trust me. You don't want to explain it. You don't have time to explain it. You know if you explain it, they're not going to get it anyways. You're like, just trust me. 
We got to wait, and sure enough, three minutes later, ding, 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 and the, tr- the train comes by, and you would have been dead if you listened to your little kid or whatever, right? And God is saying, look, you don't get it, you can't get it, you won't get it, I know what's going on, I know it's difficult to wait, I know they're hurting you, just trust me. I'm ready to judge, but now is not the time. The second thing I want you to keep in mind, speaking of micro and macro levels, remember that things may seem hard for now, especially as we're talking about the world persecuting Christians, but no matter what the human verdict, if we can put it that way, societies or the human verdict may be on our way of life, all humanity will one day stand under His judgment. Don't worry about their judgment and how they judge you. I'm talking about you know, when people judge you and persecute you. I'm not saying ignore the judge if you committed a crime. Okay, Please don't do that. I'll sit Chris on you. It may seem like those who practice such things, those who persecute Christians, those who do evil, those who malign Christians, have the upper hand. And I think it's fair to say that that is the majority of society. And so it's, if you, you know, majority rules. They have the upper hand. But in the end, friends, understand and find comfort in the fact that in the end, not the end of today, not the end of your persecution, not at retirement, in the end of heaven and earth, God will have the last word. You may, it might not be in our lifetime, in our human lifetime that He comes again. It might not be for another 100,000, 5,000 years. We don't know. And up until that day, People will still be murdering Christians in certain parts of the world simply because they're Christians. There will still be people because of their religion that legally can kill their own daughters because they brought home a Bible. And that is going to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. And people will judge Christians. They will malign Christians. They will kill Christians. But God will have the last word. Don't believe me. Believe him. And I give all those examples because I know they are gut-wrenching and I know they are difficult, but we must wait. Pursue holiness. Vote the right way. Give money to the right people. Help the right causes, but ultimately don't lose hope in their judgment of us because one day God will judge them. And thirdly, in light of both of these, first one is God's judgment and, well, the second one is God's judgment. For those of you who are looking at this and say, I've survived my whole life through college and through fraternities and through high school just blending in, it may seem appealing to just blend in, but don't do that. Don't just blend in. Don't keep quiet. Don't change your ways. Don't just be uh, externally a Christian on Sundays or behind closed doors. Don't be scared to make waves with the gospel. And with you saying no to corruption at work or whatever it may be. Because the approval you may receive for running with the crowd is short-lived in light of eternity. The comfort and ease of life you may find in just blending in and sitting in the corner and keeping quiet is short-lived in light of eternity. Don't be tempted to blend in to the depravity of the world. Don't do it. We're running out of time real quickly. Number six, we've seen shock the world by living righteously. Trust the judge by enduring persecution. Sixthly and finally, anticipate the future by trusting the gospel. Anticipate the future by trusting the gospel. Verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The fact that God is judged also means that you, Christian, will be judged upon death, but your judgment will result in vindication, not condemnation. And ultimately, what Peter is saying is this is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel that people would repent so that they could be judged based on the works of Christ, not on their own works, and be vindicated and go to heaven. And the gospel, which Peter says has even been preached to those who are now dead, 
This does not mean purgatory exists. This does not mean people who die get a second chance. They do not. This is simply, again, talking about people who were preached the gospel but have now physically died by the time this letter was written. Or in our context, we can say that people were dead now. And those who are hearing the gospel now, either way it's about Christians who are now dead, who are now alive, who have received the gospel and accepted it. This is why it was preached, so that we would accept it and that we may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And that's all the stuff we saw last week, right? The gospel was preached that you might accept it, that you will one day be vindicated upon judgment, but also for the time being that you will live for the will of God, not for the lusts of men. Right? This is why the gospel was preached. Not so you could say, yay, I'm a Christian, and then go blend in and live according to the world's standards. That phrase, judged in the flesh as men, a reference to the previous verses in which these people were judged by men, right? They judge and condemn us for our commitment to Christ, persecuted by those same men. That's what it means, judged in the flesh as men. But those who are dead and accepted the gospel are now living eternally with God, which is what the end of this verse is referring to, okay? This is what the point is. To live according to the will of God now while we're alive and one day be with Him forever. And this really goes hand in hand with our last point regarding trusting the judgment of God. As hard and hopeless as it may seem, there are people right now in heaven who are judged by men, some to the point of losing their lives because of their faith. But they are in heaven. Because they've lived according to the will of God. They stayed true to their faith and true to the gospel. They did not blend in in any way that contradicted the Bible. Ultimately, the the earthly goal of gospel ministry is the conversion of sinners. Obviously, on a big big scale, the, the goal is the same as anything we do, which is to glorify God. But on a practical level, it's so that people will repent. We proclaim repentance so that repentance will take place. And just like unbelievers, believers will be judged. But again, while their condemnation is based on their works, our vindication is based on Christ's. And just as Christ is our predecessor and example, uh, so there are many parallels in our lives as we are persecuted and find difficulties. For example, with Christ, as with us, the wicked think they have won through their persecution. But ultimately, or ultimately they see this as a confirmation that their way of life is right, that they get to persecute, they can kill Christians legally in some countries, but... The difficulties that we face today are temporary, just like Jesus' difficulties were temporary. And what is temporal does not end in oblivion, right? We don't someday just cease to exist, but it ends in eternal life. So remember that, just as with Christ. And this is what we must anticipate. Future judgment, future glory. This hope in those things. The true hope, right? There's a difference between earthly hope, which is more like I wish, like, right? I, I hope I win the lottery. You're saying I, I want to win the lottery. I wish I would win the lottery. It's something that is not certain. Biblical hope is in something that is as good as done, right? We hope in heaven because we know it exists. We hope in judgment because we know it will take place. And this hope in the things that are promised and that will be puts things in perspective on earth. On the one hand, to see the trouble, whatever form and intensity it may take, as trivial and fleeting in light of eternity. And on the other hand, we are motivated to press on and to proclaim the Savior so that those very same people who are shocked and maligned and may persecute us may have the opportunity at least to repent and follow the will of God and one day face their judge not shaking in their boots but clinging to the cross. Six responses we've seen over the two weeks to Christ's victory 
which is achieved through suffering, cease from sin by having the mind of Christ, redeem the time by focusing on the will of God, abandon the past by remembering the life of depravity, shock the world by living righteously, trust the judge by enduring persecution, and anticipate the future by trusting the gospel. Trusting it not only in your life, but as an unbeliever, trusting it, please, in turning to it and trusting what it can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege that we can actually live this way. And as difficult as it may be, I think I can speak for all of us that we wouldn't have it any other way. Because we want to glorify you. We want to be shaped to be like Christ. We want to be a part of this wonderful life that ends in judgment leading to eternity and glory, not eternity and condemnation. Father, we are all going through difficult things, but in regards to persecution, I pray that we would have the right perspective that we have a heart to pray for and preach the gospel to those who persecute us, those who persecute other Christians. We pray for repentance. We pray for the strength and the ability and the confidence to undergo persecution without a desire for vengeance, without even a desire that they would be condemned, but that they would repent. Father, help us to be good stewards of our lives and our resources today, our relationships, but at the same time, may we be aware of what is going around the world in terms of persecution against Christians and help us to use our resources, the most powerful of which is our prayers, but even our tangible resources to do what we can to help these, though they are not here at Grace Church of the Bay Area, but true brothers and sisters in Christ nonetheless. Thank you that we don't live in a time and a land where persecution really exists to this degree. And may we not use that to pursue entertainment and comfort, but use that to pursue greater holiness and righteousness for your namesake. And it is that glorious name in whom we pray. Amen.